Hi, Pitchfork listeners. Goldie here. You know, one of the joys about doing Pitchfork Economics is that I get to talk to a wide range of fascinating people on a number of issues. One of the pains of producing this show is that they have to edit my tangential questions down to fit the actual topic of the episode. And a great example of that is my recent conversation with Saru Jayaraman, where we spent a lot of time talking about minimum wage, a bit too much to fit into a podcast on marginal product. So for your listening pleasure, here is the full interview with Saru. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Saru Jayaraman. I am the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, the co-founder and president of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. I'm also the author of several books on the restaurant industry, including Behind the Kitchen Door and Forked, A New Standard for American Dining. I was looking forward to talking with you. I actually saw you speak once in Seattle when we were debating the $15 minimum wage here. And oh, that uh, was a long time ago. That, was a, lo- that <laughs> yeah. was a long time ago. We've been talking about the concept of marginal product, which when it comes to labor, pretty much uh, says that, uh, you know, the, the market's going to pay you what you're worth. If you earn seven twenty-five an hour, you're worth seven twenty-five an hour. If you make a million dollars a year, you're doing a million dollars a year worth of work. Your experience in the restaurant industry, uh, does the market pay people what they're worth? Absolutely not. If you look at the restaurant profession, especially in other countries, you'll see that restaurant and hospitality Uh, employees are considered professionals. You go to school for many years to be a hospitality professional. So there's nothing inherent in restaurant work um, that makes it low wage and certainly not low skill for anybody who's ever done it. It requires critical thinking. It requires figuring out how to anticipate customer needs. It requires pleasing customers and managing finance. Uh, There's quite a bit of professional skill that's required in working in a restaurant, the reason that the wage is so low in the United States has nothing to do with the skill level of these occupations. It is historical and it is political. And so um, the the real kind of background as to why this industry is such a low-wage industry uh, lies in a lot of the research we've done. So so the research shows that right now the restaurant industry is one of the largest and fastest-growing sectors of the U.S. economy. It's over 13 million workers. One in 11 American workers currently works in restaurants. So I'm actually getting very close to one in 10 American workers working in restaurants. One in two Americans have worked in the restaurant industry at some point in their lifetime. But despite the industry's size and its growth, it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Uh, every year, the Department of Labor puts out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs, and every year, the seven of the lowest 10 paying jobs are all in one industry, the restaurant industry. And the reason you've got the largest and fastest growing industry in America with the absolute bottom of the barrel lowest paying jobs really is the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Gardens, 
And in doing research for my last book, we uncovered that the other NRA has been around in various forms 150 years since emancipation of slavery, when it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything at all, and have them live entirely on this newfangled idea that had come from Europe called a tip. Now, in Europe, where tipping originated, uh, tips were always intended to be a bonus or an extra on top of a wage. But when the idea came to the States in the 1850s and 1860s, it was right around the time of emancipation, and the restaurant lobby demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything, and have them live entirely on tips, which was a mutation of the feudal concept of tipping. And that idea that a new, newly freed former slave population of mostly black women could be paid nothing at all was made law in 1938, thanks to the lobbying of the restaurant industry, uh, when everybody got the right for the first time as part of the New Deal to the minimum wage as part of the new Fair Labor Standards Act, except for groups of black workers. So domestic workers were included, excluded, excuse me, farm workers were excluded, and tipped workers were excluded. They were mostly black women. They were told they, were, they could be given a $0 wage from their employer as long as tips brought them to the full minimum wage. We went from $0 in 1938 to the whopping $2.13 an hour at the federal level in 2019. And 43 states in the United States continue with this legacy of slavery with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. Um, you know, and, and I think any of your listeners would be hard-pressed to say that anybody in this country is worth $2 an hour, but that is what federal law allows employers in the largest and fastest-growing industry in America to pay. And as I've just narrated, it has nothing to do with the effort, skill, intelligence, worth of the occupation, of the profession of restaurant work. It has everything to do with the history in this country of slavery, which frankly valued workers for many generations at zero dollars an hour. And if federal law allowed restaurants and hospitality industries to pay zero dollars and have their workers rely entirely on tips, would they move to that model? Uh, they already do. <laughs> um, in New Jersey and many southern states that do not have state law, they only have federal law, we find that restaurants that fall out of the purview of federal law because they're too small do pay nothing at all to their workers and have them live entirely on tips. And frankly, even in states like New York, which has a sub-minimum wage, uh, but it's still a wage. We have heard from many restaurant workers who've come to us saying our employer doesn't pay us at all. They expect us to live entirely on tips. So that already happens, and it's getting worse. Our newest research shows that the existence of the subminimum wage and the notion of tips as replacement for wages is spreading across the economy, and in particular, tech companies are picking it up. So DoorDash, Instacart, right. Uber Eats, um, you know, even, of course, Uber and Lyft are now using the notion of tips as wage replacement to have their delivery workers paid nothing at all or to have tips discount workers' wages. And because they're independent contractors, they do actually claim we don't we actually don't have to pay our workers at all. They can live entirely on tips. 
So this notion of tips as wage replacement is pernicious, and it already has led to many employers trying to get away with paying nothing at all to their employees. In a wage-based economy, there is this uh, huge power imbalance between workers and their employers. But when you're living entirely or mostly on tips, it, it also creates this power imbalance between the worker and the customer. Absolutely. So although the Restaurant Association likes to paint the picture of the average tipped worker as being a young white man working at a fancy fine dining restaurant, earning a ton of money in tips, in truth, 70% of tipped workers in America and in every state are women. They are women who work at IHOP and Denny's and Applebee's, and they not only struggle with the highest rates of economic insecurity of any industry, they also have the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry, and that is because when you're a woman who earns two or three or any sub-minimum wage, your wage is so low, it goes entirely to taxes. You live completely off of your tips, and you must tolerate whatever a customer does to you, however they touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right. The customer pays your bills, not your employer. Now, there are seven states that have gotten rid of this sub-minimum wage, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all require the restaurant industry to pay the full minimum wage like every other industry. And in those states, we find not only higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the industry, higher rates of tipping, lower rates of poverty, we also find one half the rate of sexual harassment in the industry. And that is because women in California and these seven states report that they don't have to put up with harassment from customers because the tips are an extra or a bonus on top of the wage as they were always intended to be from feudal times. And so they get a wage from their boss that they can count on like every other worker in every other industry. And they're not as willing to put up with the harassment because they know they don't aren't reliant completely on the tips. So absolutely, the power that customers have over tipped workers in the United States, millions and millions of them, in fact, the largest, again, the largest employer in the United States is enormous, and it leads to a severe sexual harassment. It leads to lack of safety, security, even sexual assault. It's a severe problem, that power dynamic that not only employers and managers, but also customers have over women in the restaurant industry. You know, when we fought for a minimum wage here and uh, more recently in New York, and of course, uh, the democratically controlled house recently passed a $15 minimum wage. Restaurant owners all tell us that they can't afford it. When when we talk about eliminating the, the tip penalty, or what they call the tip credit, they tell us they can't afford it. It'll drive us out of business. Uh, yet, I, I know our experience in Washington and in Seattle in particular, we don't have a, uh, a tip penalty. We have a $15 minimum wage, and restaurant jobs are growing at a faster pace than ever before. Are we unique, or could the whole country eliminate the tip penalty and raise the minimum wage and restaurants would thrive there too? I mean, our data and report after report after report, including one report that just came out in New York where we managed to raise the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers to $10 an hour, that is higher than other states, even though it is a sub-minimum, it just continues to show that even as wages go up, 
to 15, you know, to whatever they might be, jobs continue to grow in the restaurant industry, so much so that we're actually facing the worst labor shortage in the history of our industry, and it is actually the most acute in the places that have raised the wages the highest. So San Francisco in the Bay Area, Seattle, L.A., New York are all facing acute labor shortages, which, you know, if it were true that somehow raising these wages resulted in uh, a job loss, which, of course, you know, you can go back and forth on the data, but there's one thing that's just undeniable. If employers are desperate to find people, that would not happen if raising the wage had somehow stopped job growth. You know, the job growth is exceeding the number of people who want to work in the industry. Right. And that is because even at $15 an hour, these are not livable wage jobs in most of these regions. And so the industry really has to do better to, to be able to maintain people, to sustain people. So, you know, as I mentioned, if you listen to the Restaurant Association, you would think that somehow paying people a full minimum wage would result in no restaurants or all restaurants falling through a you know, hole in the ground. And on the contrary, the seven states that have what we call one fair wage, one wage with tips on top, a full minimum wage for restaurant workers of higher restaurant industry sales, the same or higher restaurant industry job growth, same or higher rates of tipping, and much lower rates of poverty and one half the rate of sexual harassment. So there's just no evidence. In fact, the evidence is to the contrary that, you know, it makes sense. When you pay people more, they spend in their industry, and and you can see the industry booming in these places because workers have money in their pockets to be able to, you know, it's clear from from recent experience and data that raising the minimum wage has had no negative impact on restaurant employment or on the restaurant industry itself. There was a study done a couple years at Cornell at their school of hotel management suggesting that the restaurant industry should actually lobby for a higher minimum wage that it increased productivity, reduced turnover, increased profits. And yet the other NRA continues to fight against these efforts. Is it economics? Are they just wrong? Or is there something deeper going on with their hostility towards workers? Right. So we actually have done further studies, extensive studies with Cornell, where we actually surveyed 1,100 restaurant owners across the country and found that you can cut your employee turnover in half if you provide higher wages and mobility for workers in an industry that has the highest rates of turnover of any industry in the United States. In some cases, it can be 300%. That means three turns in one position in one year. We were able through that process to quantify how much turnover actually costs employers, which is often an invisible cost. They don't record it. They can't see it in their ledgers. But retraining, rehiring, morale, uh, employee, uh, you know, just loyalty, all of those things are intangible costs that we were able to quantify and show employers that they can actually save enormous amounts of money. For the chains, our data showed it's millions of dollars annually that they're losing in employee turnover. The data's there. The, the data's clearly there that it's much better for employers to take care of their workers. The problem is all of that data can only be seen if you invest in your workforce, 
you know, and then you see the results over maybe a six month at, you know, time period. The chains that, that lead the National Restaurant Association are stuck on quarterly returns. That's what they report to their shareholders mm. by law. That's what they're focused on. And in a, a single quarter, you only see the cost of investing in your workers. You do not see the benefits. You do not see in three or four months the lessening of turnover or the increase in employee morale or the stability of your workforce or the return of customers. We see the same employees. You don't see any of those things because you're exclusively focused on four months of a year and the returns from four months of a year. And so you're, if you're so focused on short-term returns, all you're going to see is the cost of investment. You're not going to see the gains of investment. Uh, and that is so detrimental in the long run. It, it has resulted, frankly, in the cannibalizing of like, the industry has essentially cannibalized itself. The industry right now is really reflecting the hourglass nature of our economy. In our industry, you're seeing huge growth in fine dining at the top and huge growth in fast food and limited service, quick, what they call quick service at the bottom. Those middle-tier restaurants, the Olive Gardens, the Applebee's, the Red Lobsters, are stagnating because the working families that used to be able to afford to eat in those restaurants can no longer afford to do so. And guess who is the largest workforce? Among working families, it's the very same restaurant industry. And so by fighting, by the NRA fighting, fighting, fighting from raising the minimum wage, fighting as the loudest voice, you know, against both tipped workers and non-tipped workers, wages going up, they have killed their own consumer base, particularly for that middle tier of restaurants. You can just see it so dramatically in even the quarterly returns now of the Olive Gardens of the world. Who'd have thought if you destroy the middle class, you'll destroy the uh, that middle class consumer base? <laughs> right, exactly. So it's uh, short-termism once again ends up uh, uh, rearing its ugly head and uh, hurting workers. I hadn't thought about it that way, uh, that they're looking at that short-term quarterly report uh, and so, therefore, the long-term returns are of little interest to uh, shareholders. I mean, they're not that long-term, though. You're talking right. about six months. You know, it's not, you're not talking about years to see an investment or see an employee stay with you. But because these companies are obligated by law to share the quarterly returns with their shareholders, what they fight to show in these quarterly uh, returns and in annual shareholder meetings is that they're cutting, cutting, cutting costs and increasing revenue. And the first thing to always be cut is labor. Right. So they'll do anything, you know, to cut labor to show that short-term return, um, not realizing that by doing so, they're actually killing their long-term profitability. Right. It, you know, I hate to hold Walmart up as an example, but I remember a couple years ago when they announced that they were raising their own minimum wage, uh, they were savaged by analysts for that decision. Um, but, That's right. But Walmart, at least, has uh, the the CEO had the the uh, the power to actually stick with it. And uh, everything <laughs> I've great. I've heard is that their same store sales and customer satisfaction is up since then. That's right, and you can see that in any number of what we call high road. I wouldn't call Walmart a high road. Right. Business, but 
But, you know, among the restaurants that we work with that have embraced higher wages and greater mobility that I write about in my book, Forked, you're just seeing much greater returns, much greater consumer satisfaction, obviously less turnover, greater stability. And, you know, Danny Meyer is one of them. He's the owner of um, Union Square Hospitality Group, legendary restaurant owner, probably foremost fine dining restaurant owner in the United States. He's written several books on this topic, one called Setting the Table. And one of the primary things he talks about is we are, first and foremost, a customer-facing business. And, you know, we rely on our employees to face those customers with a positive attitude and a smile and great hospitality. And so we, we must invest in them, otherwise we fail. And um, he has seen tremendous success from that philosophy, from treating people well, so that they in turn treat customers well. And he's an enormously successful restaurateur. So we, we see it again and again and again in so many different companies, small and large, that that investment, it might be a lot in the short term, but it so pays off so quickly, you know, in, in even the medium term. I wouldn't call it the long term. So as a consumer, if I, if I wanted to patronize a high road restaurant, obviously I could get your book. And, and you point out the, some of the, uh, the high road restaurants there. But what in general are we looking at? What does a high road restaurant look like? So we focus in particular on three key issues that workers have named as their highest priorities. Wages is number one. And in particular, many companies have decided to move away from this sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. That is, um, to us, the highest accolade. People need to be moving in that direction. The second is benefits, especially paid sick leave, so that workers, especially in a food service business, are able to take a day off when they are sick. And the third is mobility, so that workers, particularly workers of color who are highly segregated by race into lower-paying segments of the industry like fast food and casual restaurants or lower-paying positions like busters and runners rather than servers in a fine dining restaurant, that there's mobility for them. Mobility, wages, benefits are the three key criteria. We have a free app that you can download in your app store called the ROC National Diner's Guide. It rates restaurants on these criteria. It also tells you the restaurants that have been part of our association of restaurants taking the high road to profitability. It tells you, you know, which restaurants are actually part of our what we call sanctuary restaurants movement. So you can see all of that. There are gold and silver rated restaurants. But I want to say we did not create the app just to tell you where to eat tonight. 800 restaurants in a country of a million restaurants is not enough for you to just choose only the high road restaurants to patronize. And frankly, if all we did as citizens and people in the United States is just choose to shop differently, we would not change the structures and systems that really prevent us from achieving equity in this country. So instead, what we created the app for is for you as consumers to eat out wherever you want to eat out, but go show the app to your favorite restaurant owner and say to them, I don't see you in here. I would like to see you actually join with the high road to profitability. And there's a banner in the app that, that's called Refer a Restaurant. And you can refer your favorite restaurant to talk to us, to learn from the Peer Association of Restaurants, many really fabulously you know, well-known restaurants, 
on how to move to the high road to profitability, how to move to one fair wage, how to move to providing benefits and uh, creating greater mobility, particularly for workers of color. Well, that That's great. We'll throw a link to uh, that app in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can find it there. Anything else What uh, you know from a um, legislative perspective? Obviously, higher minimum wage, eliminate the uh, tip penalty nationally. Should we move towards eliminating tipping? You know, the first step in really changing the industry has to be first providing a full minimum wage across the country with tips on top. And I want to share some really exciting news. Um, We've been moving this policy in 16 states across the country, and we won it in three places, Maine, D.C., and Michigan. In every one of those instances, the restaurant lobby actually convinced Democratic and Republican legislators to overturn the will of the people and overturn those, those victories. But In July of this year, the U.S. House of Representatives, for the first time since emancipation, voted for the Raise the Wage Act, which included not only a $15 minimum wage, but full elimination of the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. It's the first time since emancipation that either House of Congress has moved to eliminate this legacy of slavery. Of course, the Senate won't pass it. Trump's not going to sign it. But we are seeing many states that are likely to follow the House in actually passing this policy. Michigan is deciding on this issue at the end of the month. Chicago is deciding on this issue at the end of the month. Um, New York's Governor Cuomo has announced that he will move in this direction. He has yet to do it, but he has said he will. Um, Pennsylvania is looking at this issue. Massachusetts is looking at this issue. There are a number of states advancing this issue, and the House passage, the historic passage in the House, we're going to see a lot more states moving in this direction, and we need everybody to call on their legislators to say enough is enough, especially federal legislators, enough is enough. Uh, We need everybody across the country to be paid one fair wage, a full livable minimum wage. Let tips be on top of that, not instead of it. Sounds great. So, of course, we need to elect a Democratic House, a Democratic president, and a Democratic Senate to do it at the federal level, but we can do it one city, one state at a time. You know, here in Seattle, no tip penalty, $15 minimum wage adjusted to inflation, paid sick leave, secure scheduling. We've been doing it here, and our restaurant industry is booming. So Absolutely. We can show show that it works. Finally, before you go, just personally, why why is it that you do this work? You know, what happens when you've got the nation's largest and fastest growing industry proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs? What happens is that you go from an economy of one in three working Americans working full time and living in poverty to now getting very close to one in two. In some states, we're already at one in two working Americans working full-time or more than full-time and living in poverty. And so what happens to a country when half of working people can't afford to live, consume, eat? It affects all of us. I cannot think of a more important issue to work on or to fight for than to save our country from disaster because That has implications for our economy, but it also has implications for our health. When people who serve us in restaurants cannot afford to take care of themselves, it has implications for our democracy, because when people can't afford, you know, or feel very rejected by the political system, they're not going to vote at all. We have a president now. 
Donald Trump because not just Republicans, but also Democrats have left these workers behind again and again and again at $2 an hour. And so I cannot think of a more important issue to save our democracy, frankly, finally, um, than to fight against the outsized power of a trade lobby like the National Restaurant Association and to fight for livable wages for everyone. Well, thank you for your work and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. No worries. Thank you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>